Luke. We've we've talked about uh, the nature of Jesus. We've talked about uh, his his birth and and what all these things mean. We've uh, seen some of the the depths of the the worship and majesty we have of God and and the hope that He gives. And we've looked to the past and seen the, the past of his birth and we've seen the, the future of what that represents going forward. And so we, we've covered a lot of ground in these first couple of chapters of Luke. And uh, Luke has kind of been meticulously and will continue to meticulously tell us who Jesus is. And so after the birth of Jesus has been described for us in chapter 1 and chapter 2, the beginning there, He's bringing us to these three testimonies of who Jesus is. Uh, The testimony that we see of Joseph and Mary and fulfilling the law and and taking him to do what was necessary and right by by the law. And then we saw Simeon and looked at at Simeon who told us of the, the nature of Jesus and his ministry here. And this morning, as we get into verse 36, we're going to see the third of his testimonies, which is Anna. Uh, and we'll look just briefly here at Anna. So why don't, why don't we start by reading this small portion of Scripture here from verse 36 of Luke chapter 2, just through verse 38. It says, Now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. This woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, Serve God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. To ask God's blessing on his word as we continue. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these examples that you give to us, the lessons that we can learn and glean from your word. Help us this morning to indeed to learn to grow and to rejoice in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come, and you can probably notice if you've got, got notes that they're not as detailed as, as normal. So we come here, which I think we find with, with Anna, we find here really kind of a response, if you will, or the gathering together of all these things we've seen so far uh, in the way that she responds and what she teaches us here and so this morning is is not so heavy on on doctrine or on teaching, uh, but probably a little bit more heavy on the application as we start to put all of these things together and see the response of Anna as she sees the Christ child here. We don't know, but what we have here of Anna, uh, this is all we know of her, all we have of in Scripture. But it's what we have here, these few things here that we have of Anna, which she is perpetually perpetually known for. These things, these few things that we see of her. Um, we, we have here a, a woman named Anna. Anna means grace. And she is from Asher. Asher means blessed or happy. Uh, two things which I think are clearly represented and seen in the life of Anna as we look, that she is indeed a woman of grace and knows the blessing of God on her life. She is indeed a a woman of grace and blessing. But her lineage reveals God's faithfulness. The idea that she is from Asher is perhaps to us an insignificant thing to pass over, but reveals something very important about what God has done and is doing 
his life. You remember, let me take a few moments just to give you a little bit of history as a way of reminder. Uh, back in the Old Testament, of course, Israel as a nation was one nation under the first kings of Saul and David and then Solomon. And when Solomon uh, died and his sons took it over, the kingdom split. And we had two kingdoms, the southern kingdom, uh, which was sort of just north of Jerusalem, and the south was called Judah. Uh, that kingdom of, of two of the tribes, essentially, of, of Israel, was the one where most of what God was going to do happened. They were the, the more faithful of the people of God. Jerusalem was there, the temple was there. They had their fair share of bad kings, and thus that's why they would go into captivity. The northern ten tribes, so the ten tribes to the north, uh, had no good kings. They did not have one king that led them to serve and worship God. They had new places of worship, new forms of worship. Uh, The northern ten tribes uh, of Israel were a disaster spiritually. Now, as a result of that, after years and years of God pleading with them and sending prophets and doing what he needed to do to try and draw them back to him, but them not listening and not repenting and following him, they went into their own captivity under Assyria. In 722 BC, Assyria came in and took them away uh, into captivity. It would be some years after that then that the Babylonians would come and take away the southern kingdom into captivity. One of the things that's often said, though, is as that happens with the northern tribes, those northern ten, of which Asher is one of them. Asher was up towards the the north, right on the coast. Uh, One of the things that that often happened is when they went into captivity, we don't really hear much about these tribes anymore. So one of the things that's been perpetuated in, in many places through history is that these ten tribes got lost. Somehow God lost these tribes, they assimilated and uh, became part of the other nations and there was no longer these tribes that God had. They'd just become part of the rest of the world. But Judah and and, uh, the southern tribes still had their identity. But then we come here to Luke and we find here, after all of this has taken place, that there is a woman here who can trace her lineage to Asher. She is from a tribe which many think is lost, didn't exist. Uh, and assimilated in all. What happened? Although many of the northern tribes did indeed assimilate into the other cultures and the other nations, what did happen is as the northern kingdom continued in their hypocrisy and in their sin, many of those of the righteous that wanted to follow God started migrating south. They began to leave their inheritance and leave their homes in their own land and move down into the southern kingdoms where they knew the temple was and where they knew they could worship. And so the people of these tribes began to settle in the south. Some of the other things that happened is while they were in captivity, while many assimilated, many remembered and kept their heritage. God did not lose these tribes. So with this simple little phrase that Anna is from the tribe of Asher, it is a reminder that God is faithful, that God does not lose his people, that God does not forget his promises. Even when things go disastrously wrong and things happen which shouldn't happen but end up do happening because of our sin, God still cares for his people and takes care of his people. You'll find as you go through the Gospels that not only is Anna of Asher mentioned, but there are others of these other tribes mentioned along the way. God has not lost and never has lost his people. 
So the fact that Anna is from Asher is but a small little glimmer that God is faithful. Here, as we look at Anna, we see here a life of one who has lived their life for God. She is an older woman, as we we see from our text, and she sets for us a good example. So this morning I simply want to address two thoughts and glean some lessons, if you will, from two thoughts about a life that we see like Anna lived for God. And first, she had a heart to serve God. And secondly, as a result of that, she had a heart to encourage God's people. And those are my two thoughts this morning. Firstly, as we, we glean this, is that she had a heart to serve God. And secondly, a heart to encourage God's people. So let's start with that first one, a heart to serve God. What we see here, firstly, of Anna that we're told us is now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Banuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. One of the first things we see about her uh, is that she speaks for God. She speaks for God. And firstly, as we think about that, we see it tells us that she is an older woman. And depending on how the, the, the passage is, is translated in English, she's either 84 or 104, but either way, she's old. She has lived a good, long life, and she has lived this life for God. She's no spring chicken, but her life probably hasn't been easy either. To live that long as a widow has meant there has been difficulties in her life, particularly in a culture like this, which is probably why she has uh, spent so much time and, and has given her life in service to God, because it's not easy in that culture to live as a widow. But in those difficulties, she has given her life to serve God. Although she is an older woman, you know, one of the things we see about our society is our society is obsessed with youth. Uh, we are obsessed with, with youth, and not just looking younger. I mean, we, we know about that. There's all sorts of things that tell us about, about looking younger and, and trying to feel younger. You know, we're, we're enamored with the, the youthful energy and the idealism that comes with youth, or the creativity uh, that, that youth have. And these are all sort of key to everything these days. Uh, and, and young people, are, and, and even in Christianity, that's what, like that. There's a, uh, a website which somebody sent to me one time in to- uh, many years ago, designed to, to teach pastors how to dress and preach with swagger. Now, can you imagine me in skinny jeans and a ripped T-shirt? I don't think nobody's going to want that. Right, because that's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be able to reach the young, and, and it's all about, about the young. And in the end, we have lost a great deal of what it means for those who aren't young, who aren't on the, the other end. You know, the, the, idea that, the idea that the church needs to focus on the young is that you know, if a church is full of old people, it's probably not going to last very long. So we need youth to, to, to bring it up. And so we focus on the youth, often to the detriment of the more mature now, I've spoken to young people on many occasions and their, their need and their great part within church and that they are a very important part. They have young people uh, that love God in the church, but a healthy church also needs older, mature people. We need both. 
We need those that are young and vibrant and full of energy and life and ideas and creativity and, and, and idealism. And we also need those who have lived a life with God, who have the maturity and the wisdom that goes with that. A healthy church needs both the older and the younger. Because one of the main duties of church is discipleship. This teaching and training what it is to be godly. And discipleship isn't just about teaching doctrine. You know, we read discipleship and all we think, well, it's, it's teaching what we believe. And it includes that. And that's a very important part of what it is to, to disciple people, is to teach and to train. But really, at the heart of what discipleship is, it's about investing ourselves in the lives of others. Investing ourselves in others to teach truth, to encourage in doctrine, but also to show how it is and what it is like to live a life for God. To encourage those that are young in the faith or young in life to know what it's like and what they need to do to live for God. That's discipleship. Putting all of those things together, the, the, the practicality and the, the truth aspects together. Therefore, for that to be effective, we need around us people that have lived a life for God. People that have spent time with God, who have matured in God, who have lived their life and seen and learned from both their mistakes and the things they have done right through, through uh, life with God to teach, to encourage. You know, the Bible teaches us as, as younger to honor the older to honor those who are older than us, who are more mature in us. And the, the older are admonished to teach the younger, to show them what it is to live for God. And that means there needs to be grace and humility on both sides. And I say that because the older aren't to go, well, I'm older, just do what I say. And the younger aren't to say, well, you're old, you're not with it anymore. There needs to be grace and humility on both sides. To, to disciple and to mature and to encourage one another in the faith. Our church is stronger because of the older ones we have here. It is stronger for that, who show us and teach us what it is to serve. But in this part, what, the, what Anna does is it tells us that she is a teacher of God's truth. Anna is said to be a prophetess. Now, nothing indicates here, and throughout Scripture it doesn't indicate anything about there being the office of prophetess. It's not saying that she is a, has an office of a prophetess, but describing to the, the idea of prophet in general, it doesn't have solely as its idea to proclaim the future or that you necessarily speak directly from God. Those were sometimes aspects of what it meant to be a prophet, but that wasn't the, the, the only thing. That's not the only definition of what a prophet is. A prophet is simply one who speaks God's word. One who speaks God's word. And this is what Anna is said to be, one, a prophetess, a teacher of God's word. And it's possible, uh, perhaps probable, that she was a teacher in the, the, the temple of the, the women who came and taught there. Uh, some think that because we don't have any other indication here when it speaks of what her ministry was, that it's this moment, that it's this part, that it's this, this uh, event which classifies her as a prophetess because it's in this moment that she speaks for God 
and teachers of God in these these moments. Now, God's design for, for church and for church leadership has always been for men to lead in the leadership of church, but not just any man. So it's not like it's a male thing. What it is, is it's, it's for qualified men. So that narrows the field a lot to what it is to be church leadership or to be in leadership for God. That doesn't mean that these qualified men, the ones that are, are gifted to, to lead, are the only ones who can minister and speak for God. They aren't the sole mouthpieces of God. God gifts many to teach. He gives many to teach and he blesses churches with those who have the ability and the the gifts to teach. And in the end, in one form or another, we are all to speak for God. In one sense, we are all prophets in that it is our duty to speak God's word, to teach God's word to those around us. As parents, it is our job to teach the word of God to our children. Or to interact with with those around us in our workplace or our homes or places to speak the word of God. And so in that broader sense of what it is to be a prophet, we are all in one sense a prophet because we're called to speak the word of God. But I find it interesting here, one of the things that, that we see here, as we look through these first two chapters of Luke. As we look through these first two chapters of Luke, who is it who has done the most teaching for us here. Well, Zechariah has done some teaching for us, and we had his psalm there, but he started not so well, spent nine months without being able to speak. But in these first two chapters, who have we gleaned the most from? Elizabeth, Mary, Anna. So when we talk about, uh, about who can speak for God and the, the, the place of women in church, they have a great place for us. It is in these first chapters that they have taught us the most and have greatly increased our understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. What we learn from Anna is no matter who you are, what your age is, You can use and you should use your gifts to serve God. Serve God by investing God's truth in word and action into the lives of others. This is what Anna did. History and tradition tells us that probably part of what she did during these these times while she lived there was perhaps temple cleaning duties and, and various duties like trimming the candles and taking care of the things around the temple as part of her ministry and her work as she lived and served there, as well as the things that we'll look at here in a moment. One of the things that we see uh, from here about a heart to serve God is that she indeed had a heart to speak for God, and we'll see some of that more specifically in a moment. But what it tells us more about the pattern of her life to this end is that in her service for God, we see that her service for God was seen mostly by serving God with fastings and prayers, night and day. This was her continual thing, and that's the the emphasis of the words here, that it was a continual aspect of her life. She was constantly fasting and praying in service for God. She was seeking God in prayer and fasting, serving God in prayer. 
say up to this moment, we don't really know much about her service, how she spoke for God, uh, what her role was necessarily within the temple in, in a broader sense, but we know this of her. She gave her life to fasting and prayer in service for God. Now, this kind of crosses over both of my points this morning, that she serves God and that she encourages the, the people of God in both of these things. You know, when we talk about serving God and ministering for God, we often think of things you know, like, like being a pastor or, or a missionary or even serving in the music or, or helping people, meeting the needs of people in their, their sickness or their trouble or their concern and uh, or those sorts of things, those, those things that you can see. Ministry is something that you, you do and it's observable and you can see what takes place because they, they, they speak it or they act it out and we think of those things in the way of ministry. But not all ministry is seen. Not all service for God is seen, but the effects of that ministry are seen. The effects of that ministry, uh, of that service are seen. You think of the picture that God gives us of a church in 1 Corinthians 12 of a body where some parts have more honor than others and some are seen more than others and some aren't seen at all. But every part is needed and necessary as part of what God is doing, whether you see that action or not. Whether it is seen as a part of ministry or not seen. Here, Anna shows us a life given in prayer. Much of her prayer was probably in anticipation of the Messiah. In fact, if you think Daniel's prophecies, Daniel prophesied about the coming of the Messiah and gave us a pretty accurate uh, timeline of when to expect Jesus to come. And so in this time, by Daniel's prophecies, they were already looking this is probably how the, the, the Magi from the east found out because they had ministered, or they, Daniel had left in uh, Babylon with them, his writings and his things. And so that's probably how those Magi figured out it was time to follow this star to where it was going. And that's what it, what it meant. So at this time, people are looking, they're expecting, they're living in anticipation because things are starting to be what has been prophesied to be. And so many of her prayers and her fasting is probably in regards to the coming of the Messiah. See, prayer is a very powerful but unseen ministry. A very important part of the Christian ministry in James chapter 5 and verse 16 Amongst other things, as he's giving us this illustration, he says the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The prayer of God's people is powerful. It is powerful what God gives us in prayer. Those words, the effectual and fervent, speak of hard work, speak of energy. That prayer is energetic and hard work. It's, it's not just taking a few simple words and sitting in quiet and just rattling off a, a shopping list of the day. But the prayer that works is, is hard work. It is wrestling with God. The, those words fervent and effectual are often used sometimes to talk about fighting and contending. That is, it takes hard work and effort. We have to give ourselves to prayer. Give ourselves to prayer, not satisfied with just a few pious sentences. 
this type of prayer can be demanding physically and mentally and emotionally to pray like God asks us to pray. When we pray, much like Anna and Simeon prayed, they prayed expectantly, knowing that God is going to do what he says he would do. Like Simeon, Anna is looking for Jesus. She is looking for the Messiah to come, expectantly praying that God is going to keep his promises. Jesus promises when we ask in his name, which is when we ask according to his will, he will answer. I've said this before. If you ask something that is his will, why is he going to say no? It's what he wants. We're learning to seek God's will. He uses James in in chapter 5. He uses the example of Elijah who prays earnestly that it would rain because he knows this is God's will and he does it for the glory of God and God answers that prayer. The same is true when we give ourselves to fight and to wrestle and to be energetic in our prayers to seek the will of God and the glory of God. God moves in answer to our prayers. Prayer indeed has the power to do great things. New Testament is full of examples of what God does through prayer. Things like when when Jesus is looking out on the people and he sees the lost state of the people in sin and he tells us, pray for laborers to minister. Prayer raises up people to minister and to spread the gospel into a world which needs it. Paul admonishes us and encourages us to pray for the doors of opportunity to open to share the gospel. You know, the, the ability to be able to speak the gospel and share the gospel with people that need it can be opened up by contending and, and wrestling with God in prayer to open up opportunities for me to take and to share the gospel. Again, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul reminds us as he asked the Ephesians and all about prayer, and he's, he's been talking about the armor of God and the battle that we're in, and he prays, he says, pray for me that I will have boldness. Which perhaps is a good thing to follow the last one, because if we're praying for opportunities to open up, often when those opportunities to open up, if we haven't prayed for boldness, we'll chicken out. Pray for the boldness to stand against the the, the temptations that come to avoid sharing the gospel or standing and giving in to the temptations around us. He reminds us in Timothy as well that prayer can soften hearts. It can move circumstances so that the gospel can be accepted with goodness. It doesn't matter what talents you think you may or may not have, what gifts you think God may or may not have gifted you to have and to serve with. Whatever you have in talents or gifts really are irrelevant in this matter because you can pray. That is not a gift. It is a command. God's people ought to pray. To pray with vigor and energy. Not only does it tell us that she serves in prayer, but it tells us that she serves God in fasting. She serves God in fasting. Fasting is a a neglected discipline of the Christian life, of the modern Christian life. And fasting goes together with prayer. 
If you fast without praying, you're just not eating. That's what it is. The idea of biblical fasting goes with prayer. It goes with mourning. It goes with confession of sin. It goes with seeking God. The idea of fasting is to seek God, not just to not have food. That's what the fasting is about. See, fasting, like prayer, is worship. It is worship. Seeking God with the intent that he will change us. That he will show us uh, more of himself in his word, that we can become more like him. Richard Foster, when he wrote on, on fasting, says this. He says, more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. This is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We cover up what is inside of us with food and other things. And that is really part of the the, the power of what fasting is. is It's designed to help us see as we seek God, as we put away these these things like, like eating around us. It's not always eating, but those things. And we put those things aside. It reveals to us just how much power we let things have over us. That we let distract us from God. Fasting, we're told in Scripture, is designed to humble us. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting. To start to see ourselves in a right perspective. To put ourselves in a place to seek God. Because the idea is that we focus on God. That we seek God. Fasting or prayer is not about getting what we want. So it's not a means to an end. Just, we, we say this a lot about prayer. Prayer isn't just my wish list and me going to God with what I want. And the same is true with fasting. Fasting isn't that special boost switch. If you fast, God will fast track what you want. It's not about me getting what I want. It's not a means to an end. Fasting with prayer is a means to worship, to find God. These are the ways that we see, and it gives us an example of what it is to serve God, to give ourselves as a life for God, to pray and to fast. Things that we can all do, that we all should do. In fact, when Jesus talks about fasting to his disciples in the New Testament, he doesn't say, if you fast, as if it's a question, or he says, when you fast. That is, this is to be part of our spiritual disciplines. The second thing we see of Anna here, real quickly, is not only does she have a heart to serve God, but she has a heart to encourage God's people. She has a heart to encourage God's people. The last verse of our text here, verse 38, says this. And coming in that instant, so at that moment when Simeon is proclaiming his uh, prophecy and his, his words over Jesus Christ and to Joseph and Mary, and coming in that instant... She gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Here she speaks of God's goodness. God answers prayer. By God's hand, she is brought in to that spot at that moment. It's another one of those God incidences things. 
that we talked on, on Wednesday about how God orchestrates the, what happens in, in the life of Esther and all in Esther and how uh, Haman takes his lots, which was you know, basically kind of dice sort of thing, and he's throwing the dice to find the day that it's going to happen. And we looked in Proverbs 16 and it says, man throws the lot in his lap, but every decision is of God. That is what seems like chance. That is what seems like us casting the dice. God is on the other end turning the dice. And here we see Anna brought into the temple. Herod's temple where they're at was a vast temple full of people. And at that moment, God brings this one woman to see this small gathering of people to answer her prayer. God is faithful. He answers the prayers of his people. And he has answered her prayers. But notice she's at least 84. He hasn't done it quickly. But he has done it. He has answered her prayer. God may seem slow at times. But he is never forgetful. He may seem slow to answer our prayers, but he is never forgetful. When Anna comes upon this, she immediately gives thanks. That is her first response to give thanks. Thankfulness is an important characteristic of God's people. True thankfulness is a mark of a true believer. It reminds us that we've been saved from the rule of sin and selfishness. When we're not thankful, that's that's a sign that, that selfishness is ruling our heart, not God. Thankfulness says, I know that I have much to, to give praise to God for. Now, she doesn't wait to thank God in prayer later. She doesn't see this event and then wait so that she can go back to her room there in the temple and give praise in God uh, privately. She does so publicly. And I say this often, and I say it often because I need to be reminded of it as much as anything, just like I need to be reminded about fasting as much as as anybody. But I say this often, we need to be outspoken with our thanks to God. We really do. We need to be outspoken about our thankfulness to God. It is a testimony of our belief. It is a testimony of God's goodness and faithfulness when we share with one another the goodness and the praise and the thankfulness that is in our heart it is a testimony it is a praise it is a glory to God to publicly express our thankfulness to God it encourages others in the work of God as we see what God is doing in the lives of others around us but not only that it helps you remember what God is doing you know, it spoke of having memorials to remember God's work, ways to remember what God has done in your life. One of the great ways that you can mark God's work in your life is to tell other people about what God has done in your life. As you speak of God's work, as you rehearse the work of God, as you speak out the thankfulness of God in your life, it is keeping that fresh in your mind, reminding you of what God has done. And here she speaks of God's work also. The last part of the verse here says, and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. She encouraged God's people in their Savior. Now, the unsaved need to know the gospel. Those that do not believe Jesus Christ need to know the gospel. We need to tell them 
about Jesus. But Anna isn't telling the unsaved here, the non-believers, about Jesus, is she? That's not what she's doing at this moment. She's telling those that believe. Her words are for those who are looking, who have looked for redemption. She's speaking to the believers. Simeon has already spoken to us of the importance of of what Jesus is to to those out and the evangelistic nature of Jesus' coming. Anna here reminds us of the importance of speaking Jesus to those that believe Jesus, to those who know Jesus. We need to talk about Jesus with each other. We need to talk about our Saviour with each other. That is the primary purpose of gathering together as a church. The primary purpose of a church gathering on Sunday morning is not evangelistic. It can be that. But the New Testament tells us the primary purpose of the gathering of God's people together is for the worship and encouragement of God's people to grow, to glorify the name of Jesus Christ so that we can do the work of an evangelist in our lives, that we can be the people that we need to be. We can do this, talking about Jesus to one another. We can do it by talking about doctrine. Go by discussing the word of God and talking about Jesus and and questioning each other and enjoying conversations about who Jesus is. I enjoy those conversations, uh, getting into the details of of doctrine and what Jesus is. Those are, are good conversations to have. But that's not the only way that it can be done. It can be done as we share the testimony of his work in our life. We talk about what Jesus has done in our own lives, what he is doing in our own lives, as we share answered prayer with one another. How God has worked and changed our lives and and worked amongst those around us, learning from one another about how to live for Jesus in our places of work or in our homes or in our school, learning from one another how to connect what we believe with how we live in the world, talking about Jesus to one another. These things help us and encourage us. Talking with one another about our Savior helps fuel our hearts with love for Him. We sing a song occasionally, and one of the verses says, I love to tell the story to those who know it best, for they seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. Right? Who doesn't love to hear about Jesus? To talk about Jesus. And when we do, it encourages our hearts, lifts our spirits, strengthens our faith. We need to encourage God's people in their Savior, but also to encourage God's people in their salvation. She, she spoke of him because he was coming for redemption. His work, what he was coming to do. We need to encourage one another in your salvation. Invest personally in their life, in discipleship and love be involved in the life and to to give ourselves to be part of the process of sanctification in the lives of the people around us. That is helping one another live out, to work out the salvation that God is doing in us. Encourage each other in the ways you've seen them grow in Christ. How how often do you you go to a brother and sister in Christ or somebody you see here on on Sundays or, or Wednesdays and say, you know what? I've seen this aspect of God work in you, and that is really encouraging to me. 
to see this part of obedience or this encouragement in the way you have spoken to me. And to encourage one another in the way God has been at work in the lives of those around us. As much as we speak of the way God works in us. It fuels the hope of God in each of our lives. To see God at work. We have seen three testimonies in these last few verses of of Luke chapter 2. And in these three testimonies, we have seen three important parts of the Christian life exemplified. In Joseph and Mary, we have seen the importance of obedience. In Simeon, we have seen the importance of hope. And in Anna, we see the importance of encouragement. All these things are important parts of God's work in our life and what he is doing. Your scripture is full of people like Anna. People whose lives are very much like ours. Ordinary. We go about our days doing the things we need to do to serve God and to meet the needs that we have. But not standing out as the great saviors or the great people of history. Lives which are simple but typified by a passion for God. Your life may not stand out in the pages of history. Of Anna, we have only these verses. We have only these words for a life which was lived steadily in passion for God. But that doesn't mean that your life doesn't make a difference. That if you don't stand out in history, your life is not what it ought to be. You can every day see God, encourage those around us by serving God and his people in whatever way you are able. Simple ways that you can serve, that you can use your gifts by praying, by fasting for God's people and seeking God. We have here a wealth of knowledge amongst us. People who have lived a life walking with God. Who have made mistakes and done the right things and in all those things have learned what it is to live for God. They have much wisdom to share. Let's learn from one another. Grow from one another and encourage one another. To live your life for God, have a heart to serve God. And have a heart to encourage God's people. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be together. To encourage one another from your word, but also to encourage one another in our conversations, in our prayers, and in our fastings. That we might be a people who speak your word, who speak your truth into the lives of those who love you and into the lives of those who don't. Lord, may we be a people who live our lives for God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.